All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is the intro for episode 57. I have with me James Lindgren, as usual, and I have James Alfred with me. We're going to be covering transhumanism and cybernetics. For those who don't really understand what those two words mean, right out of the gate as we jump in the episode, uh, Jason will begin to define them. But to cut to the chase, transhumanism is basically merging human beings with machines. There's a full frontal press, and there is this idea that has been around since at least the 40s when the Macy's Foundation began to gather almost every professional group you could imagine to talk about cybernetics, which is the foundation for transhumanism. There's a full frontal push, and this idea being pushed out through media, movies all over the place, that this is coming and that it is the natural progression of human beings, uh, kind of replacing any evolutionary idea with the idea that technology uh, merging with people is the ultimate and only possible next step for people. Uh, It's a bit hard to swallow when you get to break it down, and in my view, transhumanism is nothing more than ultimate slavery. If it was implemented in the way we see them talking about implementing it, it would be slavery at a level that probably could not be resisted uh, once it was implemented. That's just my personal view. Anyhow, you're going to find in this episode some astounding things. We demonstrate through personal research and the research of others that basically the sci-fi genre, you know, we talk about H.G. Wells and all these other sci-fi writers so much, but the sci-fi genre was basically created to push the cybernet, well, transhuman agenda. And when you first begin to see this, you're thinking, how can this be? But once you start to do the research, you begin to understand with what we can see in all the movies, books, and all the other sci-fi materials that we've had since the 40s, that this is, in fact, appear to be true. Not only that, these jokers from the Macy's Foundation who first started to claim that the human brain is nothing more than an input-output device and can be controlled and programmed with binary code and, and game theory... They were there at the beginnings of the internet. When DARPA was putting together the early ARPANET, they were right there understanding that social media was going to be a big part of it and it would be the largest data collection device in the world, giving the most complete human map that could ever be imagined, which is exactly what social media has become. And these guys were right there. They had their hand in it. They made tools to monitor the internet. They made all kinds of other stuff that they don't talk about that had directly to do with mining the internet for data and particularly social media. It's a hell of a thing to think about. Anyhow, you're going to find same old players, same old names. There is a common thread through so much of what we cover here, and a lot of it has to do with Tavistock and uh, social, social programming, engineering. Anyhow, let's jump into episode 57 with James and Jason. Cheers. All right, man. Welcome to Crow 777 Radio Podcast. This is episode 57, and I have James Alfred and Jason Lindgren with me, and we're going to be covering... A topic that is really very pertinent to our lives uh, since the onset of what we call the information superhighway or the Internet. Uh, You will be surprised to learn probably in the course of this conversation, if we have enough time to get it all in, that even the foundations of the Internet uh, were planned with transhumanism in uh, in mind. And it's, in fact, how we got social media, believe it or not. But um, transhumanism, in my view, is inseparable from cybernetics. And the Josiah Macy Foundation, and by the way, you may recognize the name Macy. We were trying to take the time to tie it to Macy's The Store, um, which we have not yet been able to do. We may go back on that um, because so many people have covered that there's been, I don't know, at least five false flags outside or around Macy's stores. But Josiah Macy's begins probably is the beginning of cybernetics. So as Jason begins to run down the transhumanist information um, that we have in the timeline, when he is done, I'm going to begin to intersperse cybernetics. And this may seem a little ramshackle, but I'm hoping there's method to this madness, because by the time we get down to some of James' major bullet points, uh, we'll really be crossing into cybernetics. But I think we need to be thinking about both of them in the same breath. Anyhow, welcome, James. How are you, man? Doing good. Doing good. Uh, Living the dream, yeah. Got to... Uh did a big conference on uh, continuous improvement for work. So, you know, just just <laughs> recharging, ready to go. How's the blog going? 
It's going well. I got uh, I've got a couple ideas in the works. I'm going to get one up on this latest film that I saw this past weekend, Guardians of the Galaxy. Some really interesting themes in that. Um, just kind of put it together this past couple days, so I should have that out here shortly. Yeah, I haven't seen it. I think I think Jason may have. I'm not sure, but isn't there a bit of transhumanism going on there? Definitely. There's a lot yeah. going on in that film. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Um, how are you, Jason? I'm doing great, man. Glad to be here with uh, both of you guys. And I did see that movie. And yes, there is. And I see you brought your radio voice once again. Um, <laughs> any, anyhow, um, we've got probably one of the larger lists that we've had to tackle here. So almost certainly this episode is going to go over. So without, you know, gilding the lily any further, Jason, go ahead. Let's jump into transhumanism. And as you get through the initial points, I'm going to intersperse um, some cybernetics. And I'm actually going to quote from a book called, and I want to get this in to make sure credit is given where it's due, The Tavistock Institute, Social Engineering the Masses. It's by Daniel Estelin. Um, there's a lot of good information in here, and I was able to corroborate uh, and agree with so much of what's written down in here. For people who remember the Tavistock episode that we did, and unfortunately I didn't look up the number, um, there was a lot of parallels uh, to his work and what we did there. Anyhow, it's all you, Jason. Go ahead. So we're going to be discussing man and machine and how certain folks in this world would like to see those two completely intertwined. So let's start off with a very easy uh, definition of transhumanism. It's frequently abbreviated as H+, sometimes with a capital, sometimes not with a capital. It is the belief or theory that the human race can evolve beyond its current physical and mental limitations, especially by means of science and technology. And I would add in that in regards to the elite, wonderful people who are out there, it is very much also a spiritual journey of sorts. Uh, They're believing themselves to be working towards the unification of man and machine and becoming gods in their own minds. And I would suggest that this could be their own great work as we saw in our alchemical study. Yeah, it's it's hard to imagine where this goes. I mean, do the people pulling the stream strings watch everyone else become transhuman uh, as a just the ultimate form of control, or do they partake in it to some degree? It's hard to know. But I will add this: um, one of the goals of transhumanism is to get people to view technology on the same level or equal to technology uh, or inanimate objects. In other words, to slowly shift uh, the world consciousness to begin to view technology and inanimate things as on a par or on a similar level as human beings. Um, And we can think about this right now uh, with movies that we've seen recently. What was that movie called? WALL-E, where the little robot is, you know, everyone's rooting for the robot and the stupid people are so fat, all they can do is sit around in floaty chairs. Um, There are a slew of movies where there are cybernetic beings or robots introduced where the audience is meant to feel sorry for them. Quite often people are doing the bad things to them. But anyhow, I want to make the point here early that transhumanism is pushed via movies, music, and uh, the the genre called sci-fi. But I'm going to take a quote from the Tavistock book here. I'm going to do this a couple times here because it's information that I could verify. Um, The claim in this book is that few people realize that the genre of sci-fi is not a legitimate literary genre, basically, and that it was laboratory designed and imposed on the minds of the American youth by the same financial and political interests who earlier sponsored the drug trade and later the counterculture movement of the 60s. Now, Jason and I have covered this. This is going to come up time and again. And the reason is because in the same way LSD was brought to bear from the universities that were in bed with CIA and the military industrial complex and the oligarch families that we always talk about here, they realized that transhumanism could be used in a similar way to basically engineer and program the the entire populace of the world. Um, Anyhow, uh, let me just check my list real quick here. All right, go, go ahead, Jason. I'll hand it back to you. Yeah, and I would say, too, that uh, with the idea of H+, I think Jason's spot on here. It's this great study. I mean, if you actually look at that symbol, you're talking about the eighth letter of the alphabet. Uh, Again, if you translate this into the Hebrew corollary, this is the letter het or chet. Um, What I did was I looked at the, again, you return to the Kabbalah, the tree of life. Suddenly you see a connection with this letter 
to the third station, understanding and strength, the fifth station. So you've got the three plus the five is again equal to eight. Um, the letter per Jewish mysticism is typically representative of the letter of light or possibly the doorway of light from heaven. And of course, eight, if you put it on its side, is the number of perfection of infinity. So at a very high level, you could say that the plus uh, that is subsequent to the letter H designates the idea that perfection can be one-upped by humanity. You can call it hubris, you can call it pride, or you could even call it uh, a possibility, but um, that's just one possible perspective of this symbol. Um, you don't see a whole lot of that written about, but I think it's an important way to set the tone here. Well, it's interesting because when I first saw it, when we did the research, um, and then I saw it again in bullet point one that, that Jason handed me, it almost implies human plus, right, in their minds. Yes, that's exactly <laughs> what it is. Mm -hmm. Although I, I think James is closer with hubris plus. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Anyhow, um, if you don't have anything further, James, go ahead, Jason. So the first definition was just the, uh, the, the general one floating around. The next one I took from a transhumanist website, and it defines the term as a way of thinking about the future that is based on the premise that the human species in its current form does not represent the end of our development but rather a comparatively early phase. You know, this is a strange way of wording things because it's the end of our development is how they say it. Not, not the idea that humans can evolve or become some higher thing. It's about development here. So what I added here is Josiah Macy, I think it's back in the 40s, ends up creating the Josiah Macy Foundation, which is in fact, what brings us cybernetics. Um, anyone who wants to reference the book I just mentioned, the Tavistock Institute, um, Engineering the Masses, uh, there's a ton in that book about it that I was able to verify. But here's the problem. Cybernetics, which is inseparable and probably foundational to the transhuman idea, makes the claim that the human brain does not reproduce reality but calculates it like a computer. And this led to the idea of applying the binary system to the human brain in the same way we do computers in the binary system. And that makes the cybernetics idea. And in my view, this is wholly false. This is wholly a group of people coming into a natural system. You know, it's almost like the idea of alchemy and chemistry. You know, it's almost like that. If we were to say alchemy was more on the natural side of things and that the human brain is more on the natural side of things, these guys are coming in and saying, not so fast. The human brain doesn't do anything but interpret. And it can be hacked or manipulated or programmed in the same way chemistry is brought to bear in a very man-made way. But anyhow, I wanted to get in, in that in there. Do you have anything, James? Nope, nothing on this part. All right, so from a transhumanist point of view... A plan for the future might go like this. First, a humanoid robot controlled entirely by a human brain via some sort of brain and machine computer interface would be the first stage in this new evolution. Then we would move on to a conscious human brain transplanted into a humanoid robot. And this is something we've seen in media. Then the human consciousness alone would be uploaded to a computer and the final state would be a hologram that contains a fully conscious human mind. <laughs> How many movies have we seen with these ideas in it? But um, to switch back over to the cybernetic side of things, the foundation of transhumanism, um, guys like all, all the guys that I'm going to mention here or that I do mention are coming out of the Macy's Foundation, just so you know. And they're even you know, anthropologists like Margaret Mead, they've got engineers, they've got everyone under the sun working on this. Guys like a guy named, I guess it would be Wiener or Weiner and Bertrand Russell, formulated that computers could be used on populations in the same way LSD was used to engineer the 60s counterculture. Um, before long, they began to add things like game theory and apply this to the cybernetics idea to engineer society. Um, and to be clear, there is no separating places like MIT, which are in bed with the military and, and other shady outfits, and the Tavistock Institute are forerunners in studying group dynamics, which plays into this. What we're basically saying here is that these guys couched scientism and all these other things, transhumanism and cybernetics, with the ultimate goal of how do we hack the human mind? How do we control a world population? That's what this is about. Anyhow, James, you want to add anything? 
No, the uh, really, well, I guess, yes. Uh, you know, it's important at this point in time to note the idea of consciousness. And this is an age-old philosophical, theological point of debate for years and years and years. But you're, at this point in time, it's important to just make note that consciousness is ultimately at play and could potentially be the end game of all of this transhumanism. And we'll get into that as we move along. Um, do you want to talk about the Jung aspects of this, or do you want to hold off? Yeah, we could hold off a little bit. I think it might fit in once we get through the uh, 19th century. Okay, 20th. it's all you, all you, Jason. So my last point of definition for transhumanism comes from a gentleman named Max Moore, and I'll get more to him in a little bit. He is described as a philosopher and futurist who writes, speaks, and consults on advanced decision-making about emerging technologies. Transhumanism is a class of philosophies that seek the continuation and acceleration of the evolution of intelligent life beyond its currently human form and human limitations by means of science and technology guided by life-promoting principles and values. See, this is a load of hooey, in my view. Uh, this is just hidden scientism. This is taking natural things and trying to apply cold-calculating ideas of science and scientism to get an end result, and that end result is ultimate control. There's no getting away from it. We can draw the lines to where cybernetics starts, to where transhumanism starts, and it's the same players over and over and again. Josiah Macy's is an, Macy is an example who starts cybernetics with his foundation, is an oil man that ends up going into Standard Oil probably under the aegises of Rockefeller, in other words, uh, under Rockefeller in some way. It's always the same old names here. But get this. Cybernetics, these early kind of 1940s roundtable meetings they had, brought together engineers, biologists, neurologists, anthropologists, and psychologists based on the nonsense claim that the brain was little more than a computer or an input-output machine, which could be programmed in the same way as a computer. This really begins to underscore the true intent behind these ideas that we're talking about. It also states that the human nervous system is just a large automation and subject to mathematical modeling. Now, I'm going to ask the question, Facebook anyone? There is no denying on the tale of this research that the social media that we got was implemented by the same old names we always talk about for the express purpose of collecting large amounts of data and getting kind of a humanity world map that would provide them the tools they need to begin to go down these kind of transhuman roads. Um, James. Yeah, I agree with that completely. I mean, if you want to talk about a new occult religion, a new uh, area of mysticism, look at data collection and data science. That stuff in and of itself is so fascinating and it's beyond most people's recognition. I mean, it's it's moved to a point where, I mean, I consider myself to be a fairly analytical person. I've had some statistical backgrounds, but the programming and the use of these these data points, it's, it's amazing. So I, I think this is really the new occult science, if you want to call that, and it's far beyond the common person's understanding of what they're actually doing with this data. And as you said, this has all been triggered from the early, late 19th century, early 20th century, and it's all funneling into a, a unique point. And there's no getting away from it. Even on TV now, they're running commercials with the Sheldon character from Big Bang uh, talking about transhumanism and AI. Um, there's no separating AI from any of this. And, of course, we have other commercials where they're claiming, I forgot the company that's doing it, that they actually know what the future is because they are building it. This is what we are talking about. Um, and social media plays heavily into this. We're probably not going to touch too much on it. But people need to be aware, man, if you're going to play the Facebook game and you're going to play the other social media games where your whole life is laid out, what you are doing is contributing data to the push to transhumanism. Um, anyhow, Jason? The next point we're going to get into with all this is how we're going to see the tie-in of what's really going on. And that's how modern transhumanism actually came directly from the mouths of eugenics and the people behind it. So modern transhumanism stems from the older eugenics movement that started in the mid-19th century and lasted all the way through the first half of the 20th. And this idea of improving humanity through selective breeding had been around for centuries, but it was the notions that were put forth by Francis Galton after reading his half-cousin Charles Darwin's work that an actual name and full-blown concept was put into being. 
Now, Galton believed that desirable human qualities were hereditary traits, although Darwin apparently disagreed with this elaboration on on his evolutionary theory. Galton named his research eugenics in 1883. So <laughs> there is so much we could cover on eugenics here. And uh, on the tale of all the research we've done, uh, in my view at this point, Darwin is nonsense. Darwin was put in place um, to basically pursue oligarch agendas. Now, I'm going to read a couple things from the Tavistock Institute, Social Engineering, the Masses, the book. Um, these are things I was able to verify, but it really puts a pretty – pretty powerful level of understanding behind the eugenics idea. Here it is. Eugenics, a crackpot notion of hereditary hereditary superiority and inferiority originated in the 1880s and 1890s spawned by a British network of families, including Darwin's cousin, Sir Francis Galton, Thomas Huxley, Sir Arthur Balfour, the Cadburys, the Wedgwood families, and other late 19th century British Empire strategists linked to the roundtable movement of Cecil Rhodes. I'll skip ahead here. They saw an opportunity to advance mankind towards a new dark ages by taking the reins of Darwin's perversely racial survival of the fittest natural selection um, ideas. It goes on. Rockefeller, Carnegie, and Harriman by 1910 and the British had created the first network of social social workers expressly to serve as spies and enforcers for the eugenics race cult. There's more where it goes on. I'll do one more excerpt here. Eugenics Quarterly Magazine became Social Biology, and the American Birth Control League became Planned Parenthood. This goes on and on where they began to out the the Christian fundamentalist groups, the World Wildlife Fund, Planned Parenthood, as all being sponsored by places like Carnegie and Rockefeller, for the eugenics program. Um, I don't know, James, do you have anything to add to this? Uh, I mean, this is such an interesting time in history, if you want to call it history, but you've got all of this work on the biological front. And then I would even argue you can bring in the work of uh, infamous Nitschke, the philosopher, right? And yep. you, there's so much to be said about this, but I mean, I, I found one quote that I think ties perfectly with this stream of thought. Um, it's regarding the overman. He goes on to say, I teach you the overman. Man is something that shall be overcome. What have you done to overcome him? All beings so far have created something beyond themselves. And do you want to be the ebb of this great flood and even go back to the beasts rather than overcome man? I think this is a, you know, you've got all of these different scientific fields, fields of thought, philosophy, so forth. This is all a very interesting time where all this stuff is getting merged together. So again, you can say a million things about Nitschke and whatever his impact was on Western thought, but it's... This is an individual who isn't kind of critical to the transhumanistic origin. You know, the idea of eugenics that plays into this uh, in the research that I've done recently, it's claimed that Africa has taken the brunt of uh, the eugenics depopulation and sterilization ideas. And as I began to try to validate uh, whether these claims are true, what I was finding is it does appear to be true that Africa has taken the brunt of sterilization and depopulation depopulation. One of the things that really struck me was the World Wildlife Fund is apparently even Greenpeace tied to these guys doing these things. And in a lot of cases, what they're doing is going in and saying, hey, man, these animals need to migrate. um, So we need to take over these large corridors. And in essence, what's being done in an unseen way is the human population there is being undermined in a big way. But anyhow, I don't want to get too far off on eugenics. Um, Do you want to add anything more, James, or should we kick it back to Jason? Yeah, go for it, Jason. Well, before we get into Julian Huxley in the 20th century, we started seeing books and stories appearing throughout the early 20th century with eugenics slash transhumanist notions. And is there any one of particular that uh, jumps out at either of you guys you want to put out there? You you want to go, James? Go ahead. Uh, sure. I mean, just it's a very, very oft repeated thing, but you've got this uh, biochemist, British biochemist in 1923. He writes, his name is Haldane. He published a book regarding the science and the future. Uh, one quote from that book was, great benefits would come from controlling our own genetics and from ge- science in general. He proposed the idea of ectogenesis. This is the idea that you can artificially incubate a human embryo, and this in turn would create a taller, healthier, and a smarter individual in the future. Um, 
he has an, a Prometheus statement in this work, which of course we've touched base on in the past. Uh, he states, it sounds, disgust, it sounds disturbing, but he states that the feats of Prometheus will always initially shock the existing gods. The ideas may appear to be blasphemous now, but they would later be recognized as an important advance. This in turn, this book in turn um, created a new work by J.D. Burnell in 1929. This one was called The World, the Flesh, and the Devil, wherein future space exploration would require technologically modified human beings to exceed in future colonization. Then, of course, we have 1932's Brave New World. You know, what more needs to be said about that? You both have done a really good job talking about that book in the past. And then we get into 1935, and this is where Tavistock and the uh, psychotherapist Carl Jung starts to uh, appear. And you can say what you want about Jung's work. I'm sure it's been disproved. I'm sure there's a whole field of people that have criticized his work. But at this time, it, I think it's important for people to realize that this guy was the cutting edge when it comes to uh, psychology and the consciousness and so forth. And some of the ideas that were proposed in this Tavistock lectures, he talks about the idea of the Jungian character type. You have summaries of Jung's archetypes. You have ideas related to the Jungian interpretation of dreams. And then you get into the idea of the triad of consciousness. You have a three-level multilayered psyche where you have the ego on top, personal unconsciousness below that. And on top of, or I should say, both of these sit on top of a base, which is the famous collective unconsciousness that he's written so much about. So that's kind of a, a timeline. And again, all of these things are merging together in this point in time. Some of it might not be right. Some of it might be wrong. But at this point in time, this money is interested in the work of Carl Jung. So something to, to bring up at this point. I, I would view Jung as the foundations of what Tavistock and other places with a similar interest actually ended up running with as their playbook and their rule book. Um, you know, this plays right into the alchemical episode that Jason and I just did for the simple reason that Jung is credited with recognizing that his patient's dreams, uh, the, the kind of imagery that was coming out of that work, related directly to alchemical archetypes. And then he became interested in alchemy. And this, in my view, is the foundation for the statement that I make that alchemy is being used to transmute the world mind. Um, Young is at the base of these things. And we've already covered this, you know, how he puts forward the idea that um, or he furthers the idea in some way that you've got a consciousness that is what we all experience, you know, in, in the waking day with language and all that. But there is a subconscious and that subconscious speaks a different language, which is symbolism. Now, the symbolism there, and I think you may have something to add on this, James, um, is hackable. Um, and this starts to play into social engineering, transhumanism, cybernetics, all of it. And before mm -hmm. I kick it back over to you, James, uh, we should point out that every time a Huxley is mentioned uh, in what we're talking about, they are related to Aldous Huxley, who wrote The Brave New World, which is the blueprint for the coming age. Um, anyhow, James, do you want to add anything about the kind of hacking of the subconscious? I think so. You know, again, this idea of collective unconsciousness, it's a very vague, very ambiguous, but at the same time, I think it resonates to many, many people. When you start to talk about the idea of archetypes, symbols, and so forth, you could call the collective unconsciousness this um, idea that it's this God force or God wave. I, I don't know even how you would per go about saying it, but it's existed since the inception of humanity's existence. Like you said, it carries with it the power of symbol and so forth. Uh, there was a very, very interesting dialogue that Jung included regarding the spirit of man um, in his book, The Collective Unconsciousness and the Power of Archetypes. And I probably butchered that, but I'm sure most people know what I'm talking about. There was a story regarding a young theologian, and it mentioned that this theologian was having a difficult time in his life where he was experiencing individual spiritual deficiency. So this theologian wrote to Jung and talked about this idea of the white and black magician. Uh, and I think this is interesting because I think this story will resonate in all of our work that we've done up to this point. And anybody who's listening, they're going to immediately have thoughts and have some sort of basis of understanding to this story. Uh, the story goes, um, the theologian was dreaming and he was standing in the presence of a sublime figure called the white magician who was clothed in a long black robe. The magician had just ended a lengthy discord with the words and for that we would require the help of a black magician. Then suddenly the door opened and another man came in, the black magician, who 
this time was dressed in a white robe. He too looked noble and sublime. The black magician wanted to speak to the white magician, but hesitated to do so in the presence of the dreamer. At that point, the white magician said, speak, he is an innocent. This idea now is that this black magician had come to the white magician in order to find the lost keys to paradise, and he needed the assistance of the white magician. And the story that he depicts at this point in time as to how he came in possession of these lost keys, um, this black magician had been employed by a king. This king had desired a suitable coffin for his future burial. They in turn dug up a coffin of a dead virgin girl. When this virgin girl's bones were exposed to light, this woman or this young girl turned into a black horse that had fled into the desert. And with this, the black magician followed this black horse into the desert. And it is at that point in time, he discovers the lost keys to paradise. So he goes on to say that um, these symbols that have deep meaning that have existed with all of us since we were born and they've existed with our ancestors and so forth. It's a pathway to a primordial religious experience, but how does one recognize it? So I think this is important at this point in time. I would say that there's this theory that all of these archetypes have been out there uh, with humanity and has been embedded into it's our collective unconsciousness, yet these primordial images are possibly open to reprogramming. This leads into one potential problem of the transhumanist idea that we're going to be talking about. So I just want to say, you know, what if it's possible that at the end of the day, you have a group of people who are attempting to manipulate these symbols, basically restructuring the human brain and our meaning to symbols that benefits a select few. Just thought, but I wanted to throw that out there at this point in time. You know, it almost seems like there's the alchemical crossover into Jung's work where if they are using scientism to refashion the human brain as nothing more than an input-output device where they can apply game theory and binary code mm -hmm. and collect data from social media everywhere and literally engineer the planet, um, we could almost look at the subconscious archetypes because they're always called collective. They're always referred to as universal as the computer network, you see. And so if you do begin to hack that in a way, their claim or what they're implying here is that they're hacking us all at the same time. But it's it's a hell of a thing to think about. Anyhow, back back over to you, to you Jason. So the direct public transition from eugenics to transhumanism is actually quite blatant and obvious in the works of Julian Huxley. He wrote several papers discussing the need for eugenics, as well as giving multiple lectures throughout the years. So the first paper of note is The Vital Importance of Eugenics from 1933. In it, he states for the need of sterilization of the unfit and identification of carriers of defective genotypes. He argued that the principal goal of eugenics in the short term should be to ensure that mentally defective individuals cease having children. He advocated in particular for a prohibition of marriage of the unfit, segregation of institutions containing degenerate individuals, and the sterilization of the unfit. So, I mean, we saw this get you know, flown up the flagpole with the supposed Nazi regime. And again, 1933, let me count the ways. Um, this stuff goes on and on. Basically, what you see here is these oligarchical, special, elite, royal bloodlines or blue bloods, whatever the heck you want to call them, uh, taking on the mantle of we are the judges of this world, and we will determine what human beings are valuable and what human beings are not valuable. This has come to absurd proportions now, where there are basically seemingly a small group of people who are special and the rest of us uh, not at the same level as them. The scary thing about this is it may well be that they have used ancient methods to further their abilities as human beings, but there's no getting away from the dark side that they have clearly crossed over into. But I will add, the Macy's Foundation sponsored these huge kind of get-togethers in the 40s where they got all these people that I mentioned before and all these professions. They sponsored cell biology studies to analyze race science and the eugenics techniques they wanted to bring to bear. This also led to clinical techniques that was later called brainwashing. So you can see how nearly every facet of what we have covered in the show ties back into the very topic we're covering today. Um, James, do you have anything to add? I would just add before, uh, you know, Jason gets into some of his other quotes here as time goes on in the 20th century. He, This individual, we briefly touched on Julian when we discussed the JPL saga and the JPL storyline. And one of the premier principles of JPL, Frank Molina, eventually became attached to 
Huxley's uh, NATO's UNESCO, which is supposed to look out for the poor, help out the poor, looked for developing poor countries and so forth. But he was quoted in a eugenics review that, um, quotation mark here, the, low, the lowest strata, allegedly less well endowed genetically, are reproducing too fast. Therefore, birth control must be taught to them. They must not have too easy of access to relief or hospital treatment, lest the removal of the last check on natural selection should make it too easy for children to be produced or to survive. So just a very harsh, very non-humanistic look at uh, fellow man at this point in time. Well, somewhere, I don't even remember what, what part of my research I was doing. It was claimed that UNESCO was just whole hog into the eugenics and that its foundation was intended to do just that. I haven't had time to try to confirm that. But I mean, at this point, would we be surprised? I mean, come on. All right. So the second paper, UNESCO, its purpose and its philosophy is from 1946. And it outlined the broad goals of the newly established organization, as well as Huxley's stance on how UNESCO should attempt to address them. While he put forth that the goals should be international peace and security, collaboration among the nations, and human welfare, he put forth the strong eugenic spin on these goals by arguing that true human welfare could only be accomplished if individuals pursued the most desirable direction in human evolution. He argued that, in particular, besides worldwide education reform, UNESCO should be strongly focused on promoting population control and the eugenics problem. His words. You know, it just dawned on me that one of the key tenets of social engineering is limiting variety. And in the statement you just made, that's exactly what we see. We see a group, in this case UNESCO, um, coming in to be the gods, the judge, the jury, the executioner, deciding uh, the fates of large groups of people. And in doing that, what they are saying is... We have all this variety, except the variety you guys over there are bringing, that's undesirable variety, so we're going to do away with it. That's basically what's going on here. Yeah. Uh, the, the whole thing with all of this is who is the one deciding the mentally and genetic unfit? Well, it's these people, of course, isn't it? It's the same people we talk about every single time. Um, it's all the people who are in the Trilateral Commission, the Club of Rome. Um, it's the black Venetians. It is the current sitting British bloodlines. It is the Carnegies. It is the Rockefellers. And these are just the people we see. Who knows what's you know beyond that? But it basically comes down to, in my view, a bunch of white people who are apparently some of the oldest families going who value their bloodline and had all the wealth and all the power early on. That seems to be what's driving this. You got anything, James? Yeah. And, you know, to add to that, we as a larger population have learned to accept it. Right. We're just these people are making all these decisions for us. They've they're implementing all these social engineering projects going all the way back to what we've discussed thus far. And for the most part, you know, my ancestors, my great-grandparents, everybody accepted it. That's just the way uh, the world works. Well, that was through the social engineering that was so effective, isn't it? Um, even if we just look at entertainment as being part of the problem here, you can see um, that we've been pulled away from looking at or thinking about things that matter. As a matter of fact, we've covered on this show um, how the American people play no role in seating a president. No role. Zero role. Um, and they can't remember back to high school where they were taught what the Electoral College does. And what they're actually focused on is what a Kardashian is doing. Mm -hmm. And, you you know, what Brad Pitt and Angelina are up to and what show is coming on this week. You know, you can really begin to see um, how entertainment's been played into this. And I would ask, you know, if you logically break down why we care about an actor, um, you will quickly see that it's nonsense. You're looking at a person that is pretending to be something they are not. And that sets aside the whole Greek definitions of what actors actually were, which were hypocrites. Um, and yet somehow uh, through the social engineering, they've been elevated to this like royally absurd idea in the minds of, of most of us. And these are small parts of what keeps our attention off the things we should be thinking about. Anyhow, in my view, anything to add, James? Uh, nope, nothing right now. It's all you, Jason. All right, the third paper is UNESCO Statements on Race from 1951. 
In it, Huxley demonstrates that he had opposition to racist policies. He argued that there is inadequate evidence to conclude that racial groups are based in inherited genetic differences. His main stance on all racial matters was not the idea that any one race was in any way superior to another, but rather that strong genetic characteristics should be fostered in offspring, regardless of their race, and even if there were also some negative characteristics as well. So this starts to leverage off the whole Darwin idea of survival of the fittest, doesn't it? Almost like Darwin, you know, came up with these ideas to begin to allow them to later be used in ideas like this. What he seems to be doing here is trying to couch their actual intent, where people who aren't white with blue eyes and coming from these European bloodlines um, are, are not as good. Um, and that's exactly what we're seeing here. He's acting like you could go into Africa and find a genetic line where there's these superior traits that they would foster. But the exact opposite is true. What they're doing is applying eugenics to the entirety of Africa. And that can be demonstrated. And we can even track back to things like Planned Parenthood, a bunch of very religious Christian organizations, the World Wildlife Fund and these other places, which are, of course, always paid for by the same names we always talk about. Go ahead, James. No, I I agree, and um, I think that you know, Jason's next bullet point here, we really start to see this all boil down into this fantastic term that we're we're getting to transhumanism. Absolutely, the term transhumanism was first used by Julian Huxley at a lecture in 1951 entitled "Knowledge, Morality, and Destiny," and he later wrote it into his 1957 book "New Bottles for New Wine." And in that book, he advocated for what he called the Fulfillment Society, which will be committed to the full development of human potential and will replace the Welfare Society or the Power Society, as he called them. He saw transhumanism as another word for his evolutionary humanism, which is the deliberate effort by mankind to transcend itself, not just sporadically, but in its entirety as humanity. Man remaining man but transcending himself by realizing new possibilities of and for his human nature. You know, it's almost like they're they're saying exact opposite things here. When you break transhumanism down to what it actually is, in my view, it completely subverts any idea that there is a spiritual higher plane like enlightenment or going to heaven or something like this that a human being can get to. And yet every facet of every culture has these ideas in them where, in fact, there is a higher spiritual plane we can get to as human beings. Actually, most of them claiming that human beings are the highest thing in town once they reach these levels. And then we we see this tripe like what you just said, where they're basically saying the exact opposite, where you know, you need to merge with machines to follow the actual true course of where human beings have to go. It's all nonsensical to me, man. Mm-hmm. James? And I, yeah, and I found a, an older review of this book, uh, New, or what is it, A New Bottle of Wine for New Wine. And he actually, this author actually wrote A New Bottle for a Very Old Wine. Um, he makes mention that transhumanism, as Huxley presents it, it's a monist, monoistic, naturalistic, an atheist in nature. Huxley rejects all forms of dualism at this point. The natural versus the supernatural, spirit versus matter, that's all irrelevant in his paradigm. He is using Freud and Fraser's framework at this point in time, too, who see man's religious evolution move from magic to animistic religion to science. Huxley, in 1957 now, is stating that man no longer needs the hypothesis of God. To quote, Today, God is becoming the erroneous hypothesis in all aspects of reality, including man's spiritual life. So, again, another cog to the to the transhumanistic puzzle put together in 1957. So, we come back to the Macy conferences that you mentioned earlier. And what this actually was, was a set of meetings of scholars and professionals from various disciplines that were held in New York by the Josiah Macy Jr. Foundation between 1941 and 1960. The stated aim of the conferences was to promote meaningful communication across scientific disciplines. The ones specifically relating to transhumanism, however, are the ones that dealt with cybernetics, and these particular meetings were held between 1946 and 1953. The principal purpose of the conferences was said to have been to set the foundations for a general science of the workings of the human mind. 
So if I break this down logically in my mind as I went through the Macy's conferences, what we're looking at is the people who own science. That is what we're looking at. The people that we're talking about, the people who are funding them, the families that they're related to, the old oligarchs, are in fact the people who are going to determine what science moves forward, what gets into our schools, what gets into our textbooks. But to put that bluntly, in my view, what you are looking at is scientism. It is the ultimate form of materialism. That's what science has become or becoming. And so what materialism is, is kind of contrary to the ideas of a natural existence or an alchemical natural way where human beings do in fact have some natural ability where we have a course we can go on and become higher beings following a more natural course. What we're talking about is scientism, the ultimate form of materialism, which completely flies in the face of all that. But more than just flying in the face of it, it seeks to do away with it. It seeks to remove that as even a possibility for a human being to choose at some future point in time. Um, Jason or uh, James, do you have anything to add? Oh, no, nothing. To, I mean, this is fascinating, this this area here. I'm curious what you uh, found on all of this, this topic. Well, the cybernetics really seems to be the roots of what transhumanism came out of. And uh, the thing that, that is so astounding in all the research we do is it's always the same people. So here Josiah Macy is an oil man who ends up you know, under Rockefeller in the standard oil game. We have already shown that, I mean, even we're, we're bandying about names like uh, Julian Huxley here, who is related to Aldous Huxley, who wrote Brave New World. You begin to get a picture where modern culture culture and modern big literature and movies and all the things that really dominate cultural society are pretty much being brought to bear by a very small group of people. And in this case, the cybernetics thing, it's really kind of a Frankenstein uh, idea to begin with. They take a human mind and say, the human mind doesn't do anything but interpret. It can be represented with ones and zeros. On top of that, we can bring in all these professions, apply gaming theory, and we can engineer the human mind in mass worldwide to get some outcome that we want. Along the way, we discovered that we could limit variety and this would allow us to loop back in over and over things that had already happened to engineer to, uh, you know, this certain end. But then when you put on top of it um, what I just mentioned before, where science has just been turned into scientism and is the ultimate form of materialism, it's really a, a bastardization of everything natural, in my view. Up next, in between the uh, mid-20th century and up until the modern era of this transhumanism that we're about to get into that's just so popular, we have a couple of other figures that, um, James, I'd like to hear from you about. And the first one is FM 2030. Yeah, I mean, there's a big gap here. And a lot of the you're looking at the Huxley statement in 1957 from transhumanism. Crows just talked about these Macy conferences that went through 1960. Um, there's a lot that's going on in between. You've got a 2001 a Space Odyssey, of course. We've talked about that. That was released in 68, 69, I think. Uh, but one character who kind of stood out to me when I was looking into this was the idea of, and this character named FM 2030, or 2030, 2030. He was a Belgian writer, philosopher, and lecturer. Um, he later changed his name to FM 2030 for two reasons. One, he thought he would celebrate his 100th birthday in 2030. He didn't. He died from procreatic cancer in 2000 and was later placed in cryonic suspension. Um, and he also changed his name to break free from the use of a tribal past humanistic naming convention employed by the collective mentality. So basically <laughs> saying that my name, your name, all of our names are just remnants from the past. We need to move on. We need to. So, so he picked up FM 2030, which is like a label on a Hewlett Packard, you know, printer. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yep. Uh, his book uh, he published in 1989, it was called Are You a Transhuman? Monitoring and S Stimulating Your Personal Rate of Growth in a Rapidly Changing World. Um, ultimately, what he was arguing is that humankind, the species, needs to transcend both capitalism and socialism by automating work and expanding leisure. So this is an interesting point. Um, there was a very famous sociologist in the 20th century named Thorsten Veblen who did a study on uh, leisure in respect to class, the idea that people who have money, wealth, so forth, things that us common folk envy and want, this materialism, 
that is depicted through symbols of uh, leisure and so forth. So I think this is interesting that he's saying, well, to get people on board with the idea of transhumanism, let's let's present it as something that we're going to automate all this work and everybody's going to have free time. Well, I, I can actually add something there, James, because uh -huh. it's documented and we can demonstrate that the Macy's Foundation funded the pill, the birth control pill. Mm -hmm. um, and then it was applied to the counterculture of the 60s in the same way where you're talking about fun and leisure. Here comes the pill. Now all these people can have sex scot-free uh, in mass, you know, changing basically being called the sexual revolution, but the way they got there was recognizing that a substance called LSD-25 had been successfully used to program the counterculture. They used a pill in a similar way. This is documented, and the main goal of the pill in LSD-25 was to quell the overwhelming optimism that was present in the United States post-World War II, um, and, you know, it's not really arguable when you look at the roots of it, but it's the similar idea, isn't it? It is. It is. It's just another form of enslavement, if you want to call that. I mean, even though maybe I'm going to have a couple more extra hours a day to have free time, I mean, it's not the same as me owning a trillion dollars and having access to leisure time. It's completely different. It's just another form of enslavement to distract the masses and distract the, the psyche. So uh, before we leave with him, I just wanted to add this quote for both of your uh, input and feedback. He was quoted as saying, in respect to the transhumanism and FM2030, the character who was representative of transhumanism, quote, I am, a I am universal. I translive all over the planet, learn via telecom, have many professions, am involved with many people, consider all children as mine also. Neither right nor left. I am up. I have no age. Am born and reborn every day. I intend to live forever. Barring an accident, I probably will. I also want to help others live infinitely. My philosophy, optimism, abundance, universalism, immortality. End of quote. Yeah, yeah man, I don't even know it. So I guess the accident was death, huh? I think so. <laughs> I, I guess once you're a transhuman uh, person, you don't get on planes or buses anymore because there's like a one in a million chance you could mm -hmm. die. Um, you know, it's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And the next one you wanted to mention, James, was the band Kraftwerk and their interesting robot pop from the late 70s, early 80s. Yeah, I think this is an interesting connection. Again, there's electronic music was prevalent in the 20th century. There's all sorts of various things that were happening in terms of music with electronics. But for me personally, I think that Kraftwerk was kind of the, the keystone there. And I think this would be probably a very interesting study to see if there was any military industrial connection to this band. I'd say there's probably a very high probability that that's the case, but I have not looked into it. So I'm only speculating at this point in time. But for those unaware, Kraftwerk, it was a German music group that pioneered early electronica and industrial music. It basically built the scene, and this group existed in Europe in the late 60s, early 70s. Um, a classic example of sort of a transhumanistic song in pop format would be their take and their classic song called Autobahn. I don't know if you're either of you are aware of it, but typically when you look up the song, it is supposedly an electronic version of a Beach Boy song. So to kind of take a step back, you could more or less look at this as a synthesis, again, of humanity, humanity being the music of the Beach Boys from the uh, 1960s with the computer. Uh, you could almost go so far as to say this is a synthesis of the human tragic character who is Brian Wilson, which I'm sure many are familiar with all of his ups and downs throughout his career with the perfection and the purity of the computer. So that song, for the most part, is always called the hallmark or the point in time in the music industry that electro-pop, industrial, all of the music that's gone from that, Radiohead, you want to name it, it's all traces back to Kraftwerk. Um, other songs have included Robots, Computer Love, Showroom Dummies, The Man Machine. And what I find interesting that many, many music critics and people who look into the idea of 20th century pop music, 21st century pop music, they would argue that this is the most influential band ever, more so than even the Beatles and have had a greater impact on the soundscape of the past 40 years than any other Western musical act. Just an important little side piece to the idea of transhumanistic thought. Mm. 
You know, that's pretty interesting because I'm aware of at least a couple of 80s bands um, who were, uh, you know, crediting Kraftwerk with being their influences. But I've heard it from a lot of other bands up into the more modern age. But here's the thing, you know, you get into this electronica music, which apparently is huge now, like in Vegas. Um, I don't think they call them raves anymore, but I'm showing my age. There's a lot of these halls being rented out to do this kind of electronic music. But the thing about electronica in this way is it really has removed the human element. If you listen to a person even playing an electric guitar or a cello or a piano, you can sense the human touch and the human emotion coming through the instrument. When you get into this kind of electronica, that's all gone, man. It's just like computer-generated beat at that point, and the, the human touch has been completely removed. So I think it's completely apropos that we're talking about this uh, in conjunction with cybernetics and transhumanism. Mm-hmm. Do you have any thoughts on that one, Jason? I know you follow a little bit of music and so forth. Yeah, well, I listened to some of the stuff last night, especially the earlier stuff, and the thing I noticed that even though it's electronic music, mm-hmm. it still has a very natural feel to it because, one, they're recording to tape, and that just imparts its own character compared to, like, everything would be digital today. Mm-hmm. And the effects would all still be analog. You know, the the reverbs I was hearing and all that, that would either be a plate or a spring of some sort because... Um, the digital stuff was just starting to come around, and the recordings weren't overly impressive to me, meaning that they might not have been recorded a top-of-the-line studio from 1977. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I still heard like, heard like an organic nature to it. And, and, of course, as the years start going by, that'll get wiped away. In the 1980s, you get into that nasty 16-bit digital reverb that gets lathered on everything, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. That's interesting to say that because I, I do recall the story of New Order. It was a band in Manchester, which you know is in the news right now. But I, they have that famous song, Blue Monday. I think you might mo- both be aware of that. Again, mm-hmm. it's another very proto-electronic song. But I think I had read that Kraftwerk actually attempted to record in that studio once that single from New Order was released. So for what it's worth, it's just an interesting side note that maybe they were trying to recreate some sound that they weren't able to capture initially. Interesting, yeah. All right, so bringing us into the, the more, most recent past few decades, we're going to touch on the very public figure of Ray Kurzweil, and he is the tip of the spear for modern transhumanism as far as the public sphere is concerned. He believes and openly states on many different mediums that we, the collective of humanity, will soon reach a singularity, the point where humans will transform into what he calls spiritual machines. The definition used for the singularity is the point when carbon and silicon-based intelligence will merge to form a single global consciousness. Scary idea. One big cloud, as it were, huh? Yeah, like the Borg or something, I don't know, but maybe this is a good good time to interject. Um, I went back and did the research because I was reading the claim that uh, cybernetics was actually brought to bear on the initial forming of the information superhighway that we call the Internet or the Web. Um, basically, what cybernetics did during DARPA, uh, DARPA's creation of the early web and then later ARPANET, um, was they treated the Internet as an electric system, electrical system, and they brought the idea of using circuit breakers to monitor ideas, which became the core of social networking. Then using game theory theory and other things, it was shown that society could be engineered in this way. So um, as, as Jason's pulling us up into the modern era, and then, you know, we talk about the mid-90s when most of us are starting to get exposed to the internet, these cybernetics guys, these transhuman guys were right there with the military-industrial complex. Many people are not aware that the internet was initially designed by DARPA. Um, It was a thing called ARPANET. And the idea they put out into the public was, oh, we created this thing to decentralize communications because, you know, information goes out every which direction. So if some city got blown off the face of the earth, um, the the information would still get through because of the way the Internet works. Um, These were the things that the public was told. But here again, when I did the research, there is absolutely no getting away from the fact that the cybernetics guys were right there applying their game theory, their binary systems, and everything else to the early ARPANET understanding that it was going to be an information superhighway and that social networking and other things were going to go on and they were just 
putting it together and waiting to get their fingers on it so they can get the data out the other side and begin to engineer the world at large. So um, there's that. And I know I kind of got off a bit there, but James, do you have anything to throw on the tail of that? Uh, so, cheap joke. So, it wasn't Al Gore that inter- invented the internet? Is that right? <laughs> is, yeah, I, I think he actually yeah. invented the internet. So, I'm not sure if it's yeah. the same thing as the thing we're using now. It's kind of like uh, these tubes and hoses, I understand. Nice. Yes. <laughs> no, nothing else on this end. So, to finish up the little introduction on Ray Kurzweil, he feels that we will become immortal minds through the technology that is coming. He says that humanity will transform the earth into a paradise, then migrate into space where it will terraform other planets. So he wants to basically (laughs) create an intergalactic godhead. And to quote him, fantastic voyage, live long enough to live forever. Ray Kurzweil is currently the director of engineering at Google, which we will get into in hour two. Hoops, there it is, man. So, you know, if any any of the work I have done is correct and that the solar system is misdescribed and space is misdescribed, his very statements here about we've got to leave this place, go into space and terraform these other planets, it's already couched in nonsense. Um, so it really begins to tell you that the way it's being packaged to the public does not even give you a whisper about the true intent behind transhumanism. In my view, transhumanism, if it got implemented in the way they talk about it, is the ultimate form of control. You are basically a computer at that point. In other words, when I wake up in the morning and I want to get on the Internet, what do I have to do? Well, first of all, I have to have an account and a password to get on the Internet. Imagine if you are the computer now. You want to go into a store and you're not authorized? Guess what? You're not going into that store. You want to buy something and you're not authorized? Guess what? You're not going to buy that thing. It is literally the ultimate form of control. But what makes it a bit more scary is the idea that everything you're thinking and doing is already known by the time you're doing it. But anyhow, that does bring us a bit past the top of the first hour. James, is there anything you want to add before we close the first hour? Uh, no, and I, I mean, I do agree, and I think you're spot on. I think this is a form of enslavement, and uh, we'll get into this second hour. But I think at the end of the day, conceptually, transhumanism is presented as the ability to utilize AI for human achievement and for um, extending your life. But I think at the end of the day, that's just smoke and mirrors. What we're really seeing is something that is hacking into the the mindset that for an an intent to benefit a select few. And and that's, we'll talk more about that in the second hour. Yeah, there's no getting away from, I mean, Brave Brave New World absolutely applies here. And he's the damn brother of one of the main pushers and movers we've been talking about. Anyhow, Jason, uh, go ahead and do what you do before we close down the first hour. So we want to see you joining us for hour two because we're going to get more into Ray Kurzweil and all the craziness that's going on at Google, a gentleman named Max Moore who we briefly touched on in the beginning, and a very interesting concept that's been growing for the past few years called libertarian transhumanism, and it's an actual political party. This is fascinating stuff, and I didn't even know any of this was out there. I want to end this first hour by saying this stuff is way, way further along than I had any idea about because I just really didn't get into it other than uh, here and there. And by going heavily into this research, I was quite shocked to see what is really going on in 2017. Yeah, you know, there's no getting away from it. When Darwin was coming around with his survival of the fittest nonsense, these things were already in mind and being pushed forward. When the genre of sci-fi was first invented, these ideas were being put forward. In the modern entertainment industry, we could draw lines all day long where the transhumanist agenda is being put forward. But then when you pair it off with eugenics and cybernetics, I mean, there's really no major world event that you can't tie it to. We can talk about Planned Parenthood. We can talk about the World Wildlife Fund. We can talk, I mean, we can talk about UNESCO. We could talk all day long about these overarching organizations that were put together and funded by oligarchical families. Anyhow, that does bring us to the top of the first hour. And if I had to guess, we're probably going to have one of our longest second hours that probably pushes towards two, uh, gauging how much we got through and how much we have to get through. Anyhow, I hope to see you all over at crow777radio.com for the second hour or two of episode 57 covering cybernetics, transhumanism, and just ultimate enslavement. There it is, man. Cheers. Cheers.